So here we are, we're at the end of our sermon series. It's funny, I have been an employee in a shorter space of time than we've been in this series. So this series has been going on, it predates me, um, so that's, that's crazy. Uh, but we've made it all the way through Luke's gospel. Uh, and we've got a bit of a flavor about Jesus' ministry, uh, what exactly the implications are for us as the people of God assembled here in Bangor. Uh, and as well, uh, we've seen as a major theme throughout Luke's gospel, a Jesus who breaks down barriers by spending time with those on the absolute margins, as well as with foreigners and strangers. And what we see modeled by Jesus is a radically different kind of life, which is available both to you and to me. So last week in our life groups, we spent some time uh, reflecting on the crucifixion uh, and we thought through how Jesus, firstly, has made peace for us with God. We thought a bit about the freedom that he has won for us and how the cross is not a symbol of defeat, but it's actually a symbol of victory, victory over sin, death, and the devil. And so this week we're looking at the resurrection, and this is really important, guys. It's a really, really key doctrine for us as Christians. The Christian faith is essentially a religion of resurrection. It's a faith that says the God-man, Jesus, has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first humans, that he has met, fought, and beaten the king of death, and everything is different now because he has done so. So instead of a dead, crucified king, we have an alive king who is now loose and at large. And so the first question I wanted to ask today was, was there actually a resurrection in the first place? And this is such an important question to ask because it's something that we as Christians affirm to have actually happened historically as something central and non-negotiable in terms of what we believe. In church, we often do this verbally together when reciting a creed. Um, and the word creed, that comes from the Latin credo, which means to believe or trust in something or to trust in someone. And so in a sense, when we recite the creeds in this place, we are verbalizing that we as the people of God in this place, believe or trust in something or someone. In the Apostles' Creed, it says that on the third day, he rose again, that he, Jesus, ascended into heaven, that he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And as well in that creed, uh, we say that we believe in the resurrection of the body. In other words, we believe in a bodily resurrection of the rest of us later. And so perhaps you're someone here today and you're wrestling with this very question or you're on a journey of discovering who Jesus is. And what I want to do for us all here today is to affirm ourselves and to give us confidence in the resurrection of Jesus by giving some reasons, firstly, why I believe that the resurrection actually happened and why it gives us so much hope for today. And so firstly, I believe that it happened simply because there's an empty tomb. 
Let me unpack this a little. Uh, in verse two in the passage that we've just read, we read of a rolled away stone. If we look a little at the context of this in first century Israel, this would have been a round stone that would be rolled uh, into, it'd be placed into a channel or a groove that'd been carved into the rock. So it could be rolled easily into place but very difficult to push out of the way because it was placed in this groove. And Mark's gospel notes that this was a very, very large stone. And in Matthew 28, 11 to 15, we hear that actually guards had been placed at the entrance, Roman guards, to prevent anyone removing the body and saying that he had indeed risen. So we can certainly rule out thieves This was heavily guarded. These guys were armed to the teeth and they were being paid to be there. And also it's very unlikely that grave thieves would have left linen grave clothes in place. A common objection was the belief that the body hadn't been placed there in the first place. But we'll see, and we have seen in Luke, that Luke, he's very astute, he's an historian, and he insightfully points out on the first day of the week, at early dawn, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and some other women have gone to anoint the body with spices. Yet prior to this, in the previous chapter, we read that these same women had accompanied Joseph of Arimathea to the tomb. And they had seen the body of Jesus being laid in this specific tomb. They had seen how it was laid and they would have seen the stone close over. And in John's gospel, we hear that Nicodemus would have been there too. So there are plenty of eyewitnesses on hand that could testify to the fact that Jesus had been placed in this tomb. Another common objection is that Jesus had merely been in a coma and that he later revived himself and was able to get out of the tomb. And this simply would have convinced no one at all because it was medically impossible after all the things that Jesus had been through. And as well, would a bedraggled Jesus have convinced anyone? I mean, if you were a disciple, would you have gone through the persecution which they went through if your resurrected Messiah was of the disheveled, barely alive type? Or would the apostles have gone to their deaths merely for a Jesus who was resurrected in their hearts? A nice idea. This resurrected Jesus was recognizably Jesus, but it was more than a mere resuscitation. We read in the Gospels that of a transformed body. Another reason why I believe that the resurrection story is true is that the disciples themselves were not expecting it. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright comments that the resurrection of Jesus would have been totally off the Jewish mindset, totally off their radar. The belief of the resurrection was that it would be a large-scale event at the end of time after Israel's great and final suffering and all of God's people would be given life. So no one was expecting this. This is totally off their radar, even off the radar of the woman who had gone to anoint 
the body, the women go with a very specific purpose. They're bringing spices to a corpse. And then they encounter these angels who remind them of what Jesus said of himself. And the things that come to mind here are Luke 9, 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And as well in Luke 18, 32 to 33, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. So despite Jesus' teaching on this, people thought it was too wacky, too left of field, too unbelievable to actually register until it happened. And so when these women bring these spices uh, to the body and come back, having heard this news, they come to the apostles and the apostles just dismiss them outright. You're talking nonsense, idle talk, And when we look at the Greek term that the apostles use towards the woman, it's quite insulting. They're actually using a term used to describe the delirious talk of the seriously ill. The apostles, they're not looking for a reversal in their tragic situation. As far as they're concerned, their dreams of God's kingdom coming have been shattered. And the woman coming to them, it just looks like an absurd effort to challenge reality. As far as they're concerned, Jesus is gone, he's dead. They weren't expecting it at all. And Daryl Bach comments, if someone created the story of the resurrection, would the apostles have been made to look so incredulous? The account's honesty has an air of reality which points to its truth. I think Daryl Bach's onto something here in the sense that if Luke wanted to increase the credibility of the resurrection. He would have said that the apostles believed it like that and that they they saw him like that. And as well, Luke wouldn't have mentioned uh, the woman because he's writing in a context where the witness of woman wasn't respected or wasn't viewed as credible. Finally, another great reason to believe in the credibility of the resurrection is that Jesus, he showed up a few times Not just a few times, he made resurrection appearances to over 500 people. So a number of people would have encountered the resurrected Jesus for themselves. And they could be asked or questioned. Some of them are even named in the Gospels. The truth of the matter is that the resurrection proclamation could not have been maintained in Jerusalem for a single day or a single hour if the emptiness of the tomb could not have been established as a fact for all concerned. I love what uh, Tim Keller has to say about this. So if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue in which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. This has big implications for us and who we say Jesus is. So what then does the resurrection mean 
for us as disciples of Jesus? What exactly is the significance of the whole event? We have a couple of reasons why the resurrection can give us as Christians so much hope and confidence and so much encouragement today. And the first one's this. Jesus had a bodily resurrection and so will we. So in the story of the resurrection, particularly in John, we see that Jesus, he had the scars of the crucifixion, that he ate fish, that he bodily ascended to heaven, and we hear in 1 Thessalonians that he will come again in bodily form. The resurrection of the body means that to be human with God is to be with him, not as disembodied souls or ghosts or angels or little cherubim floating on clouds playing lars, but as people with noses, with faces, with legs and arms similar to the ones that we currently have. And this is so vital and so encouraging, so hope-filled for all of us because so often death is seen as the end of it all. And because it's seen as the end, it is feared. And because it's feared, it's the last thing that we want to think about or we want to talk about. Some people spend small fortunes trying to preserve their youth. But we all know this is a failing battle because our bodies age and they decay. This is the consequence of the fall. Yet God doesn't want his people to live with such uncertainty and fear about where they are going or about their future. He doesn't want us to live in panic. He doesn't want us to say, is this all there is? Is this all the time I've got? The truth of the matter is, he wants us to have a total peace about our eternal futures. Romans 8.11 says this, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. This is amazing. Christ has won this for you. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is living in you and he's living in me and he will do the same for us. He wants you to live in peace and have a sure hope I hope that you will one day have a perfect resurrection body, a body that will not know decay or illness. Perhaps some of you, you've come here today with chronic fear about your future, especially your eternal future. And I would just invite you today, if you're not following Jesus, to receive him as your Lord, Savior, and friend, to receive the gift of peace and hope for an eternal future with him and a perfect resurrection body. Secondly, the resurrection shows Jesus to be sinless and therefore we can be forgiven. The truth is the eradication of death in his resurrection is nothing less than the removal of the verdict of condemnation and the effective affirmation of his righteousness. To quote by Richard Gaffin, by raising Christ from the dead, God the Father was effectively saying that he approved of Christ's work, that he approved of his suffering and dying for our sins, 
that the work was completed, finished, that Jesus had no need to remain dead anymore. There was no penalty left to pay for sin, no more wrath of God to bear, no more liability for punishment. All had been completely and utterly paid for. No guilt. Jesus is shown through his rising to be innocent of sin. And therefore, he's able to pay for our sin. Have you ever done something and you thought, oh well, I can be any way that I can stand before God forgiven. I'm sure some of you, even today, you've, you've thought, I can't be here today because of what I've done. Some of you, I know you've probably come in thinking, I can't even cross those glass doors at the front of the church or I'll burst into flames. I know I felt like that sometimes. When we have these niggling feelings of guilt and shame or when the enemy tells us that we are unforgiven, that we are unable to be forgiven by God, that we're unable to be accepted by God or loved by God, I just ask you today, look to the resurrection. The resurrection shows us that he was able to pay for our sin, guilt, and shame. And his resurrection shows that it's completed. That as far as the east is from the west, that's how far our sin has been removed. That thing you've done that you're thinking about right now, it's gone, totally and utterly gone and paid for. So if you are that person today who's weighed down by the guilt and shame of sin and you haven't given your life to Jesus, I would just leave some space today at the end of my talk just to, for you to begin that journey. But if you are a follower of Jesus today and you're still partnering with guilt and shame because of sin, I would just invite you to meditate on these rich promises of scripture, which say that we are forgiven and set free. And I'd ask you to meditate on the finished work of the resurrection. As well, it might be a good idea. We have a wonderful prayer ministry team that will assemble in the corner here. Uh, and they're really good at standing alongside people um, confidentially, uh, simply to, to pray with people. So if that's you, if you're still, you're Christian and you're still weighed down by guilt and shame, one of the things we want to do today, one of the things I feel that the Holy Spirit wants to do today is break that off you. And finally, another great thing about the resurrection is that we have resurrection life now. <laughs> Colossians 3.1 says, since then... You have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You see, when Jesus rose again from the dead, he had a brand new quality of life. A resurrection life. He was a human body and a human spirit it was perfectly suited for obedience and fellowship with God forever and ever and ever. When we become followers of Jesus, 
the same Holy Spirit that raised Christ to life lives in us and allows us to taste something of that resurrection in the here and now. We get power to gain more and more freedom from sin in our lives, those things that hold us back. And not only that, we receive power to work from, for God, power to minister in his kingdom, power actually to change a town and to change a nation and change an island and change a world. Believers will never be more resurrected than they already are. God has done a work in each believer, in you and in me. And it's a miracle. It's a work of nothing less than resurrection proportions. And it will never be undone. And so for those of us here who, who struggle with sin, well, that's, that's all of us. Um, this truth gives us incredible hope and incredible confidence that there is more of God to be tasted in the here and now. There's more freedom to be had from our hurts, our hang-ups, our sins. And so your response today may be to set your heart on the things above and to invite the Holy Spirit to bring victory over maybe a particular area of sin in your life. Or perhaps it's today to receive more of the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel, to work miracles, and to bring more and more of God's kingdom in your life. And so as, as we come in for a landing today, just to have a few responses that you may want to take home with you today, you may want to respond as uh, we move forward into a time of worship and prayer. And the first one may be to place your faith and trust in the saving work of Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So if that is you, I would just invite you to echo in your heart a prayer. I'm just going to pray it real quick here. So if that's you, just pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you made me and that when you made me, you thought I was a good idea. Heavenly Father, I'm so aware that often I mess up. I do the wrong things. I sin against you. And so, Heavenly Father, I just receive that gift of forgiveness that Jesus has won for me because of his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. I invite you to come into my life. I choose to turn from my wrongs and turn towards you. Just ask for you to come into my life. In Jesus' name, amen. So if that was you today for the first time, it'd be a really good idea for, someone, for you to stand with someone and maybe come forward, perhaps the, the prayer ministry team. It's really important to tell someone. Um, a second response I felt that was for us today was to do with that guilt and shame. So there are some people here today, you're still carrying guilt and shame. It's still holding you back and it needs dealt with today. And so I just encourage you to meditate on the truths of scripture that we've read or even respond in prayer ministry. And the prayer ministry guys will just take, take you through that. And finally, as I've just mentioned, it may be to set your hearts on the things above, to choose to believe that there's more victory available for you 
and also more of the Holy Spirit to be had.